0: And 4pm on the Tuesday means two hours of current affairs with Jan Bartlett. And today the second and final part of the interview with Sasha Gilles-Lakakis looking at the history of the first black republic. Is he? How the Rajapaksa family and cohorts have interacted on the Tamils in Sri Lanka. I'll be speaking with Rnoga in Npakamur from the Tamil Refugee Council. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees focuses on the differences between the reporting of conflicts in Yemen, Palestine, and Ukraine, and two men we could well do without Scott Morrison and George Brandis, and the continuing push to mine the seabeds and the equally strong campaign against it, speaking with Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy there's lots to talk about in the week that was
1: a week Jan listener when in the logic and consistency department top marks to caring employers and the state of Texas we commented last week that caring employers argue casual and gig workers have their sick leave included in the fabulous cornucopic casual rate they usually don't receive and therefore there's no need for them to receive the crippling conditions with which full time workers cripple their caring employers. But then, as COVID rip rip rips argued the government must pick up their sickly payments for these very workers. With Big Supremo Anthony Orbingozy saying, No, that's it and then, displaying his firm resolve as the sundry chambers of profits and the usual media suspects like Lord Rupert of Wapping, attacked this as, grossly unfair, he called a special Saturday National Cabinet meeting to backflip, or, or sorry, realise his mistake, and accept that the public coppers are responsible for caring employers' sick leave, responsibilities, obligations, receiving loud plaudits from caring employers, which will continue until very shortly caring employers discover other crippling conditions for which the government must be responsible. While the state of Texas, well... Texas is leading the way in declaring that as soon as a swimming sperm hits a woman's egg, that micro, micro, micro is a human being and therefore abortion is illegal. Now, a woman who was fined a few hundred dollars for driving in a lane restricted to vehicles carrying more than one person is arguing that she is pregnant. And therefore, under the Texas abortion argument, there were two people in the car. But in this case, the state of Texas says, no, in this case, the fetus is not a human being. She is appealing the decision, but can we spot the odd touch of inconsistency in the state of Texas logic? If we're still baffled, clue. Had she said she'd have an abortion based on the traffic lane ruling, the fetus would again instantly become a human being. On that, good to see the Catholic bishops upholding the love thy neighbour, we're all born equal democracy bit, by vetoing the majority of non-bishops who voted for women, women, to have a greater role in and say in the dear baby Jesus church. Goodness me, we don't want them moving into the 16th century too quickly. And a major theological dispute in Majorca over a 15th century convent which the nuns hadn't lived in since 2014 because it was dilapidated. So the holy bishop claimed it as his property, his diocese property, same thing. And the dear baby Jesus nuns took it to court saying they had lived there since 1485. (laughs) Gee, nuns do live a long time, don't they? And the court ruled in their favour. Great theological philosophy in bold, we say? Well, yes. The big theological argument summed up in the final sentence of the story. The 69,000 square feet building sits on prime land. See? Never let a big, big pile of lovely, lovely money get between a bishop and a nun. Love thy neighbor. Ditto, in another brilliant move, big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital has appointed three capitalist economists to review whether the Reserve Profits Bank Board has too many capitalist economists. And the my word is a quick learner award to caring business class party economic guru and former Minister for Fossils Angus Tailings, who attacked the government's proposed 43% fossil reduction by 2030 legislation asking, what will it cost? Who will suffer? Who's going to pay for it? We've got to give it to Angus. He's a quick learner, isn't he? Betty can explain that the weather extremes ravaging the planet have nothing to do with climate change, if there is such a thing, because Angus and his fossilised colleagues know there is not such a thing. To make matters worse for poor Angus, cross benches and the Greens are insisting that the 43% isn't nearly enough imagine how much more that would cost who would pay certainly not paying the great fossil behemoths announcing record super 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 obscene profits as the price of coal and gas soars along with their co2 and methane angus knows are harmless campaigning against the Queensland Government's increase in royalties based on the super, super, super profits, obscene profits, and threatening the New South Wales Government, which is also considering attempting to get a little more out of the super, super, obscene profits based on the specious argument that the profits are extracted from a public asset. These great international corporate citizens declare righteously greedy, greedy governments wanting a bit, or a little bit anyway, of the obscene profits is the obscene bit. But we don't have to say it. Three headlines in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this week sum up the gross injustice of greedy government. Cash windfall for Woodside, Santos on high gas prices. Whitehaven urges New South Wales to keep hands off coal, cash, cow. Queensland royalty rise will scare investors, says BHP. And as we know, they are good corporate citizens. Another fossil, oil, led another fossil, US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Joe Biden capital to his new very, very, very close friend Saudi Arabia's crown prince, making sure he did not pour oil onto troubled waters. And anyway, as his very, very, very close friend explained, those troubled waters could happen anywhere, places like, well, well, Turkey, for instance. Although he did show a touch of ingratitude by pointing out the U.S. of itself had abused human rights by torture at Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, God, he could have gone on all day. Alleged abuses, of course, and then if only in the international interests of liberty, freedom and democracy, thus ensuring two wrongs make a right. And you couldn't get too much more right than the crown prince and Joe. And as for the 9-11 culprits being Saudis, well, the U.S. office has taken its revenge Justice has been served, making Saudi pay by attacking, bombing and slaughtering in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria, again showing the cathartic value of a fossil. Oil Come straight to the point. Joe came straight to the point. Wonder if the Saudis gave him COVID. If they did, he might have to send in the marines to, say, Sudan, for instance. And just when we thought we'd seen or heard the last of poor old Barnacle, lost in the anonymity of the back bench, he bobbed up to declare the government wasn't doing nearly enough to prevent foot-and-mouth disease getting into True Blue and, and for once we should take Barnacle's raving seriously, because, if nothing else, He's an expert in the foot-in-mouth department. On that, notice former big economic guru Josh M Icebergs has won himself a job with transnational investment banker Goldman Sachs, showing that these days everything he touches ends up with Sachs. Upon his death this week, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review said Dean Wills, real name, who had a string of corporate CEO and directorships, including Big Supremo at tobacco giant WDNHO Wills, later Amatil, which also included coca Killer, had a long-decorated business career, decorated for tobacco and coca Killer and salt, sugar and fat junk foods, using foods very loosely. He's now joined the millions, his products killed, and his beneficiaries could benefit from his wills, or sorry, will. Now this item would have long decorated business career deed turning in his grave as the hoped for consensus in the government's job summit between caring employers and evil unions has been threatened by we guessed it, the evil, evil unions, with the ACTU declaring it wants it to ensure workers receive a bigger share of national income, showing lazy, avaricious workers are as greedy and Aussie as those governments wanting more royalties from the super-obscene profits. And all this as the aforementioned big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital conceded, sadly against his principles, that until inflation is reined in and brought under control, wages will have to fall further and further behind the cost of living. But then when, when we can be sure the socialist government and caring employers will announce now we can have a wage rise, the time is right, now workers can enjoy a higher share of national income. It's what all caring employers want, is their odds-on to tell the Job Summit. And it's just that they can't see how it can be achieved in the current economic climate without workers pulling their fingers out and becoming more productive why big supremo anthony all Uzi, said he wants the summit to be as successful as former big supremo nuclear hawks getting true blue aussie together summit so that's exciting news for us all isn't that especially evil unions so let's hope the evil unions don't thwart his wishes by calling for something as unrealistic as workers receiving a bigger share of the national income Be thankful for small mercies, for very, very small mercies. Finally, couple of apropos of nothings. The Lord Rupert of Sin had a photo of a couple swimming at Brighton Beach, the icebergs, on one of the freezing mornings this week, and their name is Waters. Just thought I'd toss that in. Same department, those ubiquitous ads for corporate bookies, and one of them, Betfair, has used a condition to suspend or terminate an account with or without cause to ban one punter, but certainly with cause, because the punter was getting unfair. He, he kept winning. They had no choice. Although, notice in all those ads, 100% of putters win, and the corporate bookie is so happy for them why on the racing channel they even have the bookies coming on telling the punters what they think of good value what what they should back any punter who follows that advice on oh, no, a one more finally notice former state minister for being a minister adam som rack up the rorts said after a damning report into rorts he had been exonerated interesting to know his definition of guilt good afternoon
0: and for more insightful comments by Kevin Healy, tune in to City Limits
2: tomorrow morning at 9am. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gary and more. The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theater, 113 Swanson Street, NARM. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in NARM. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Center for Urban Research a 3CR supporter.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio.
0: And now part two of my interview with PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gilles lakakis on the history of Haiti in the Caribbean Sea. Sasha concluded last week explaining the split between the North and the South in post-revolutionary Haiti. Sasha, how did this split fit with the new constitution? This is quite interesting because, of course, Haiti was described as a unitary republic in
4: the constitution that Loverture promulgated in the late 1790s. Now, of course, the division of Haiti into these two countries violated the constitution, to be blunt henry christophe was the first to disregard the constitution because he also ruled significantly you know a significant amount of the legislation that he implemented before splitting into the northern kingdom was done by decree now according to the haitian constitution also decree was a last resort or was, was something to be used under states of emergency henry christophe of course ignored that as well petion really was doing his job as leader of the senate and sort of attempting to check these sorts of i guess you would call them abuses of power but once they split, that Haitian constitution actually became obsolete. So they both established their own governing charters. They weren't even constitutions. In the south, there was a constitution. In the north, Christophe continued to rule by decree, as he had attempted to do. But in 1818, Petillon dies in the south, and his second-in-command Jean Boyer invades the North and deposes Christophe and restores the Republic, and he reinstates that original Haitian constitution. So Christophe doesn't actually get captured. He kills himself before Boyer's forces can fully conquer the North. There was a bit of a brief break of about, you know, not not even 10 years where the the original constitution was removed from play, but it is re-implemented after Boyer reunifies Haiti
0: and it 's a pretty
4: radical constitution, isn't it at the time it, it's an incredibly radical even for the constitutions of today um, in all honesty it 's more radical than most of most of the current governing charters we have in the world. as I said, you know that French revolutionary idea of fraternity and equality for everyone um, was was enshrined in the haitian constitution. total racial equality was not only enshrined but Emphasised, really, really properly emphasised. Uh, the Haitian constitution recognised the contribution of the former slaves and the cane cutters and those poorest soldiers, the black soldiers that had um, constituted the bulk of the opposition to French rule. So again, recognising their role in establishing the republic is a very, very important recognition and sort of symbolic gesture towards the poorest people in Haiti modern capitalist bourgeois republic. There is nothing of the sort in the Haitian constitution. The Haitian constitution says that they want to establish an emancipatory black republic. That is, of course, open to interpretation, but, you know, that is very, very conducive to other radical ideas. Of course, you know, even if you look later uh, at socialism, that could very easily be applied to the Haitian constitution or it could, be, it could sort of work well with uh will work in synergy with the Haitian constitution. It is a very, very interesting text to study that has not received the attention that it deserves. And unfortunately, in spite of how progressive it is, most Haitian rulers have not respected it or abided by what has been put set out in that constitution, which is a real shame. And you know, one one perfect example of this is Jean Boyer, who we were just talking about, who uh reunified Haiti. But he essentially rules as dictator until 1843 so almost three decades he's in power he completely disregards the haitian constitution and the objectives that have been outlined in that governing charter he's very very unpopular he's corrupt we begin to see the massive growth of nepotism in the army and critically he begins favoring international european and american companies and lets them insert themselves into haiti's economy the insult to injury, Boyer begins a massive campaign of arrests and persecution of nationalised Haitian leaders who are against this turn that Haiti has taken. Now, it's also during Boyer's rule that we have the crippling colonial death imposed by France. France claims that Haiti owes them reparations for the Haitian Revolution. It's impossible to understand that logic because, of course, France invaded Haiti implemented slavery, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people over those decades of French colonial rule, and now says, now that Haiti has freed itself, that they need to compensate France for the fact that France no longer has the colony. It's cynical, it's laughable, it's, it's quite frankly insane. But of course, Haiti is isolated. There are no other three Latin American republics really that are willing to trade with Haiti in a substantial sense, or that can compensate Haiti for a potential loss of European trade, and Haiti not only is desperate to keep diplomatic and trade channels open with parts of Europe, which are still the dominant dominant forces in the world economy, but Jim Boyer and the Haitian elite are pro-European and pro-North American, so they accept this debt. By 1838, it amounted to 90 million francs, so that was back then, it was 90 million francs. Today it's, it's well over a billion dollars and Haiti has not yet paid it back because of course Haiti doesn't have the money to pay it back, but they have remained totally indebted to France since this time. It's absolutely horrific that Haiti's been forced to do paying back France for having the gall to free itself. It's, it's a disgusting state of affairs that of course the situation that Haiti found itself in meant that there was there was little other option and there was no leader that was willing to defy it at the time. Now Boyer is pro Western sort of trajectory. He does break briefly with it. He conquers the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, so he actually invades Santo Domingo occupies the entire island, he wants to sort of gain more economic advantage for the Haitian elite. but he's actually overthrown and ousted from the Dominican side by the nationalist leaders of the Dominican Republic's independent struggle that were known as La Plinidadia. and they overthrew uh, Boyer in 1844 and established the Dominican Republic. Boyer loses power after this, it's a very costly military occupation, um, but of course Boyer loses. After this, we had a series, basically, of, again, US-backed leaders and European-backed leaders that just continue to rule and and misrule, I should say, Haiti and its economy. Um, So the island of sinks into anonymity up until the 1890s and the 1910s, where we see renewed uprisings and renewed instability um, because, of course, the former slaves and their descendants and the cane cutters, the former soldiers that are now disenfranchised, Ever since Boyer changed Haiti's trajectory, they're tired of living in this country that is increasingly becoming uh, subject to the dictates of the Europeans and, critically, the North Americans. This is the critical point, and this is the turning point. In 1914 and 1915, we see the beginning of a U.S. occupation and invasion of Haiti. Now just to provide a brief background for why this happened. Now of course the US is no stranger to invading uh Latin American countries. They had done so to Nicaragua, to Guatemala, to Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Mexico. The list goes on. Colombia, briefly as well, Cuba. So so you know this is this is common practice for the US Empire at the time. But Haiti again, as we said, has sort of this special significance in Latin America and in the history of you know relations between the global south and uh, and the colonial countries in the global north, uh, because of course, as we said, Haiti was that symbol that disproved the entire fiction narratives that the Europeans and the North Americans have promoted to justify slavery and their dominance over the world. And what we have in 1914 is the election of jean in Haiti. Now he was a cane cutter, he was a poor cane cutter. He had led a rebellion against European and US influence in Haiti before the invasion. And he had announced as his program, his political program, the expulsion of US corporations. He was adamant that Haiti would not repay its debt to France, that it was illegally imposed and that Haiti would just ignore it. He wanted to essentially establish an independent and sovereign Haitian Republic. And he was an incredibly popular individual as well because, of course, he was also a common man. And this was one of the first times, really, that you don't have a, an educated person. Because even though, you know, Pettit, Christophe, stove the two were very popular, they had all received, to some sort of degree, they'd all received an education. They were all involved with the three people of colour. And, of course, that's not a thing anymore by this point. But, you know, this is the first sort of very, very grassroots working class leader that has, that has emerged in Haiti. Woodrow Wilson, who's the U.S. president, is not going to tolerate this, Haitian, this man from becoming the president of Haiti because, of course, all of the U.S. corporate interests that have been established um, up to that point uh, would have totally threatened. Um, now, of course, Haiti had been taking loans from U.S. banks for the past 30, 40 years at the behest of the U.S. government, so the corrupt elite in Haiti was taking bank loans from U.S., US U.S.-based banks and firms that they didn't really need, but they indebted their own country to the United States to receive kickbacks and political support from the U.S. So this is a very common, again, a very common practice of the United States and Europe in their former colonies. And what happens in 1915 is Woodrow Wilson calls for an invasion of the island. So he says that Haiti is... Going to be a destabilising force in the Americas if the Ravo Bobo wins. The US Marines land in late 1914, early 1915. They take over Haiti. This period of US rule, really US dictatorship, there's no elections to speak of. The US, um, appoints Haitian puppet rulers between 1915 and 1930. They implement some of the most disastrous policies for Haiti's economy and people and society. So to begin with, the US seizes key institutions, including the Customs House and all Haitian banks. So they come under direct US control. These banks are then forced to allocate 40% of their entire annual income to reparations to France and to the United States. So this essentially freezes development in Haiti for that period of 15 years. That takes Haiti's GDP and gives it to the US and France. It's just shocking levels of interference and the destruction of Haiti's sovereignty. It's really, really humiliating for the Haitians. It completely compromises some of their most important institutions, and particularly the economic institutions. So as we said, Rosalvo Bobo was removed from power. He's overthrown, and Felipe D'Artiglione is installed as a US puppet. Now, of course, real power lies with the High Commissioner of the U.S. Marines. It essentially rules over Haiti as a de facto U.S. dictatorship. It's it's a really, really horrific period of rule. There's incredible racism demonstrated against Haitians by the U.S. Marines. The U.S. administration dissolves Haitian Parliament. They force a new constitution on the island, so they eliminate the original revolutionary constitution and they force one on the island that critically allows land to be sold to foreigners. Now, this was something that had always been forbidden in Haiti. Even during the most reactionary rule, for example, of Jean Boyer, foreign control of land had never been allowed. It was forbidden. That was an absolute red line for the Haitian revolutionaries, even the most reactionary and conservative ones. So this, again, this is just a total penetration of Haitian sovereignty, a total destruction of everything that they had built amidst those incredibly trying circumstances, Haiti becomes a colony. There's no point trying to describe it as anything else. It becomes a U.S. colony. Additionally, US has to- the United States has total veto power over government decisions. So if the U.S. puppets did ever attempt to implement a policy, the U.S. could just disregard it. They essentially reinstate slavery. Um, So the U.S. begins a series of large public works projects, not so much to actually help Haitians, but more so to give contracts, lucrative contracts, to U.S. companies that are now allowed to operate in Haiti and own land in Haiti. And the laws that this U.S. administration passes essentially allows for, you know, the reinstatement of unpaid labour on these public works. It's not called slavery. Of course, that would just be totally, totally shameless. It does effectively operate as the reintroduction of slavery into Haiti. And finally, the US demands a total transition to dependence on coffee in Haiti's economy to feed the US market. There hadn't been a lot of diversification of the Haitian economy even after the revolution, but at the very least, you know there was sugar as well as coffee, and there was a little bit of exploration into mining, but now the US said that Haiti had to totally link its economy to the coffee market export it all to the United States to feed the U.S. consumer market. So, you know, this is incredibly, incredibly humiliating for Haitians. Even the whites in Haiti come to resent the U.S. because they are just, they're being totally controlled by this U.S. dictatorship. Further insult to injury is added by the fact that the U.S. Marines are incredibly racist. You know, the U.S. government is a racist regime. And we have uprisings of what are called the tacos, which are essentially tank-cutters and former soldiers that rise up um, in a guerrilla struggle against the US. And thousands of Haitians, uh, some people say up to 10,000, are put in concentration camps between 1915 and 1920. And by 1919, it's estimated that the US Marines have killed over 2,000 people, and that's a conservative estimate. And you know during that period, even being Haitian, just being Haitian, identifiable as a black Haitian, was enough to get you shot by the US Marines uh, while that guerrilla war was ongoing. So it was an in- incredibly terrible, terrible time for the majority of Haitians. US rule, of course, in this way is unsustainable. The, the people of Haiti aren't going to let them rule like this forever. In 1928, the global copy market collapses. So, of course, the Haitian economy just virtually enters a depression, a very bad depression, actually. The U.S. again postpones elections, as it had done since 1915, and massive protests explode across Haiti against U.S. rule to the point where, in 1929, the U.S. actually bombs the harbour in Port au Prince to kill dock workers that went on strike refusing to export Haitian coffee to the U.S. So the U.S. has had to actually resort to using bombs and aerial support to try and break these Haitian uprisings. Critically, a lot of Latin American governments begin to denounce these U.S. actions in Haiti. And by 1930, it's so unsustainable. The revolts are so overwhelming and have so much popular support that the U.S. withdraws from control of Haiti and withdraws from their their power there. And elections in that year result in a resounding victory to the anti-American nationalist Stenio Vincent. Of course, Vincente is actually unable to do a lot because the U.S. still controls Haiti's banks, controls Haiti's customs house. That was an end until 1947. That constitution, that U.S. constitution, remains in effect. It's modified by the new Haitian government, but they actually do not repeal it for fear that the U.S. will invade again. And the literacy by that point is close to 100 percent, so... The U.S. had left Haiti as worse than a third world country, if you want to use that terminology. You could basically consider it to be a fourth world country. It was absolutely dire, um, the situation that the U.S. had left Haiti in. Now, after Vincent, again, we have the exchange of power between military figures, parts of the corrupt elite that continue to mismanage Haiti's funds. They continue to do business with the United States and the Europeans, the French particularly. And in 1957... To cement this US rule and to, to again, keep a lid on what are becoming increasingly prominent strikes and protests against this state of affairs, Uh, we have the election, and I put that in scare quotes, of Francois Duvalier, who's a former doctor. So that's a 1957 election. It's fraught with controversy, but regardless of whether or not it was fair or not, François Duvalier very quickly outlaws all other political parties, um, again using the powers vested by the U.S. Constitution. Um, he wins a subsequent uncontested election where he's the only candidate. And he presides over one of the most brutal dictatorships in Latin America. So he is a U.S.-backed dictator. He becomes known as Papa Doc. He kills about 60,000 people. You know, torture and rape becomes commonplace. Forty-month prison is established by Duvalier and it becomes notorious for its hellish conditions. There's an, extermin- an extermination campaign launched against communists or even suspected communists. So that, of course, targets the cane cutters, that targets the peasant population in Haiti. Many thousands of them are killed and their land is appropriated by the state and hands it over to U.S. corporations. And the chief uh, way that Duvalier implements this, what is in essence a fascistic program, is through what are called the Tonton Macou so they are, in effect, in, in effect uh, Duvalier's secret police force, the Tonton Le um, And they're named after voodoo mythology. They actually have a lot of voodoo symbology in their uniform. He does this because he knows that Haiti's large, illiterate, rural population is very, very superstitious. They're very, very firm believers in voodoo. And he uses this to sow fear and obedience amongst the rural Haitian population, which is the majority, of course, of Haitians.
0: You are listening to part two of my interview with Sasha Kallislaikakis, and the topic is the Republic of Haiti.
4: During his rule, corruption becomes an art form in Haiti. Millions are siphoned from public the public sector and from international aid. In fact, there was very one high profile instance in the 1960s when one U.S. loan of 50 million dollars was deposited directly into the president's bank account all 50 million dollars just stolen blatantly by duvalier now the u.s of course was well aware of what duvalier was doing with this money but they were the chief source of support for him they financed essentially the entirety of his regime they sustained it they subsidized it and they gave him their political support as well because he was so anti-communist now he died in the early 1970s 1971 actually from heart failure as his son, Baby Doc, takes over as president for life. So, of course, Baby Doc was um, a moniker very similar to his father's Papa Doc, and he proves to be just as brutal and corrupt as his father. So Baby Doc embezzles, during his rule, up to 80% of Haiti's foreign aid. He continues the repression begun by his father, with the Tom Macoup, and his own personal debt ends up being forced upon Haiti, so he turns his own personal debt into Haiti's debt so that he himself doesn't have to pay it back, and that ends up accounting for 45% of Haiti's national debt. So we, we just see staggering levels of US-backed corruption during Baby Doc's rule, just as it had happened during Papa Doc's rule. And as, as I said, supported at every stage by the US government, this was a man who, like his father, had been cultivated, essentially you know, given legitimacy by US recognition of his regime. By 1986... Conditions in Haiti are terrible. You know, this dictatorship has absolutely gutted the country's finances. Infrastructure is virtually non-existent for most Haitians. Um, the Tonton macou and the military, which have grown very wealthy and privileged under Papa Doc and Baby Doc, are abusing civilians, just taking land off people, left, right, and centre, doing as they please. We have, again, massive uprisings of the people against the Duvalier dynasty. Duvalier has to flee the country because of these uprisings. So he and his inner circle are picked up by a US plane flying in from Guantanamo, and they essentially help their baby doc and his allies escape the country and escape justice. Now, it's estimated that throughout his rule, he had stolen 900 million US dollars from Haiti's Public sector and from Haiti's banks. And of course, France, which was also perfectly happy to do business with the Duvaliers, grants him asylum in Canes. So he actually lives very comfortably. He lives a life of luxury in southern France. He returns to Haiti in the early 2000s, um, but dies only months after returning. So no real justice is achieved for the 60,000 plus people that him and his father killed for the, the rape and the pillage and the looting of Haiti. There's no justice there still haven't been any sort of um, reparations for that time. Now, we see um, elections organised in 1987 in the wake of Baby Doc's retreat from the country, but there's outbreaks of violence, uh, accusations of fraud, and the elections just cannot take place within that situation, within those conditions. But in 1990, we finally, once again, have the election of a leader who is looking to... Restore Haiti's fortunes and particularly the fortunes of the poorest in the country. So this is, of course, Jean Bertrand Aristide. Now, he was a former priest, a very poor priest, you know, um, very much operated at the local level, had very sort of, very few connections with the, you know, the powerful Catholic clergy that were, that were operating in Haiti and, of course, around the world. So he wins on a platform of progressive. He um, wins with 67% of the vote, so a very, very strong victory. He nationalises certain industries, begins the process of universalising healthcare and education, so he actually restores the public healthcare and education systems, which had been virtually non-existent under the Duvalier dynasty, and he attempts to make the army, critically, a civilian-led body. So he wants to make the army subordinate to the civilian administration, to the president and to the parliament. Now, this, of course, does not sit well with the military elite, and in 1991, they launched a coup against him. So the army represses Aristide's supporters and his party, which is called La Valas, um, which means the flood, so meant to symbolize, you know, this flood of hope, this flood of new reforms to change Haiti. They're repressed by the military. And this military regime relies entirely on US aid and on the drug trade to sustain itself. So in the northern part of the uh, of the country, in particularly the city of Guernaybe, Drug traffickers had cemented themselves very, very easily during the Duvalier dynasty, during the rule of Papa Doc and Baby Doc, and they have become an instrumental financier of the Haitian military. To this day, they are financing key elements within the Haitian military. Of course, you know, this regime is unstable. It's unable to stop the massive protests that accompany the coup and the, you know, the overthrow of Aristide, who was democratically elected. And by 2000, there's another election. And Aristide wins with 92% of the vote, clearly an incredible amount of support from the public. Now, Aristide during this second presidency is even more radical than his previous rule, which was only you know, a year anyway before the coup. But this time around in 2000, he begins demanding reparations from France and says that he won't recognize that colonial a debt he expands social services even further and critically he deepens ties with cuba and venezuela to boost caribbean integration so in particular you know it's very interesting in the case of venezuela because he signed up to the Petrocaribe caribe program so venezuela provides Haiti with cheap oil and of course cuba begins their medical programs in haiti under um, aristide's presidency at this time He also implements a limited land redistribution for peasants, it's more so a land compensation, so he gives away unused state land to peasants. He begins taxing the elite, he begins asking for greater taxes for Haiti's 1%, which is really, really critical. Unfortunately, Aristide's rule does not last very long because there was another coup in the works. It takes a bit longer this time to organise, they have to be more careful about it. So in 2004, this coup comes to fruition, entirely orchestrated by the CIA and the United States government, um, in alliance with the Haitian elite and drug traffickers, in, again, in that city of Guanabes, they all conspire up to overthrow Aristide. So US and French forces, special forces, essentially invade the country. They break into Aristide's house, they kidnap him in the dead of night, and he's flown to the Central African Republic, which at the time was a French and US ally. Complete His privacy, his... Legitimacy as an elected president is once again completely violated by the U.S. and by France. Drug traffickers and the Haitian elite begin financing paramilitary groups with links to the military. They terrorise, again, they terrorise Aristide's supporters in the Lavalas party. And by 2004, we had U.N. peacekeepers occupying the country. Now, this is a critical moment because according to U.N. peacekeeping laws and legislation, The UN can only send in soldiers to occupy a country for one of two reasons. One, there has to be a war in the country, or the country has to represent a threat to international peace. Haiti fits neither of those categories. Haiti has never fit any of those categories in its recent history. So the UN occupation forces, in alliance with the Haitian military, and supported by the U.S. government, particularly supported by the National Endowment for Democracy and for U.S. aid, which become omnipotent in Haiti, they end up actually killing 8,000 supporters of Aristide and the Lavalas Party in these so-called pacifying campaigns, these campaigns of pacification against what are termed terrorists and what are termed rioters. Now, most of these people, as I just said, were supporters of Aristide, and they've been killed by U.N. peacekeepers. I think it's important to let that sink in, that the UN, in direct collaboration with the US, probably at the behest of the US if we're being honest, is illegally occupying a country and is killing thousands of people in a partisan way. They've chosen a side in this very, very complex situation. The UN is still in Haiti. It's remained in Haiti since 2004 under the auspices of this peacekeeping operation. The name changed very briefly in 2015, um, so the operation technically has now spilled over into a second operation. But it's essentially the same in terms of objective um, and you know the powers that the peacekeepers have, and they still there with sort of heavy ordnance weaponry. So you know this is this is more than just sort of so-called development aid or whatever. This is an actual military occupation by UN forces. And of course, the bulk of the UN peacekeepers have been contributed by Canada, France, the US, Britain, all of these countries that have always conspired to undermine Haiti. Now, what adds insult to injury in this case is that since that time, the UN has been involved, either knowingly or otherwise, in rigging elections in Haiti. This is really, really shameful on the part of the UN which is supposedly, you know, an objective and neutral and an international body that is not meant to have this degree of control over countries. This is a complete violation of Haitian sovereignty. Now, just to give one example, in 2010-2011, when elections were held, the UN fixed electoral boundaries so that 80% of the potential electorate was excluded from participation. So that allowed right-wing neoliberal Michel Martelly to arrive to power. And similarly, in 2015, the UN had overlooked, this is their language, had overlooked a zombie vote of 77%. So 77% of that vote was found to be illegitimate. It had just been included, you know, with fake ballots. And the UN had not scrutinised it, or they say they hadn't. But I find it really hard to believe, given the degree of control that the peacekeepers have over the country. So the UN has been involved in corruption and, you know, the violation of the democratic process for decades in Haiti. Again, at the behest of the US, the US is heavily involved here. The real objective of the UN peacekeeping mission there, I think, was shown in 2010, where there was a devastating earthquake in Haiti, in over 200,000 people. There was no substantial support coming from those UN peacekeepers in terms of healthcare support or reconstruction. If we look at health indicators now, non-communicable and communicable diseases have grown exponentially since that time. You know, cholera became a massive crisis in the in the aftermath of that earthquake. If people go to Haiti, you can see there are still ruins from that earthquake that have yet to be rebuilt. The UN is there as an occupying force. It is not there to support the Haitian people or help them develop. And I would like to highlight that it was, of course, the Cubans that were the first to arrive to support the Haitians, and they were the last ones to leave as well. That's real development cooperation and mutual win-win cooperation, not what the UN has done, uh, which, as we said, is, is essentially being controlled by Western countries in the Haitian situation if we fast forward a bit to the more you know to more recent history in the last few years Haiti is of course suffering because of this neoliberal development agenda and the neoliberal economic programs that have been imposed on the country unemployment is sitting at about 85% uh, that's you know stagger most people in Haiti do not have a job they're working within the informal economy or they're not working at all and in 2019 hundreds of thousands if not millions protested against Jovenel Moir. He was the one who came to power in the 2015 election. It was similarly illegitimate. And these protests drove the country to, to a standstill. There were demands from the Haitian people. Um, he, of course, refused to resign into mm-hmm. being supported by the United States. And in 2021, there were protests against fuel price increases and the cutting of subsidies. Uh, and this saw a massive mobilisation of progressive groups and the unemployed. There was a lot of bloodshed during these protests, too, that was not covered. For example, you know, in one instance alone, there were 25 people killed by police and UN peacekeepers, just protesters, people exercising their right to reject this illegitimate government that has not won elections, or at least it hasn't won authentic elections. You know, this, this is the state of play in Haiti, and the instability, just the sheer, you know, lack of political and economic stability in this country was really laid bare again in 2021, July 27, when Moise Jovenel was assassinated. So the, this was a really, really big thing, actually, in Haiti and in America. So in last year, July 27, he was assassinated. A group of unknown individuals broke into the president's house and shot him in cold blood. Now, you know, the exact situation that led to this, the exact rationale behind Those people who came and killed the president is still very murky. We really don't know what happened, who this group group is working for, or the reasoning behind it. We have a bit of information. We know that there were a number of Colombian nationals and Haitian Americans. They formed the bulk of this assassination squad, and there is speculation that it was linked to drug trafficking. There is speculation that the president was involved in drug trafficking and that this group was hired by some of the powerful cartels in northern Haiti to kill him. And of course, there is also the theory that the CIA had him removed. Now, I wouldn't even know, you know the reason behind a CIA decision like that. Uh, you know, this former president, Moise was a US-backed puppet. Um, so I would not even have the first clue as to why the, the CIA would try to kill him. But You know, it's not something they wouldn't do. They've assassinated countless leaders in the past. But it's a very, very complex situation that we still don't really properly understand. And we are going to have to wait um, quite a while for more information about that to come to light. Now, he was replaced again by a US neoliberal puppet, Ariel Henry. Uh, Again, without elections, he's supported by the US, Canada, France and Britain. They're called the Core Group in Haiti, the core Group that supports the UN peacekeeping operation. His, the death of the previous president, Moise Chauvinel, sparked a wave of gang violence. You know, it really did lay bare the fact that the Haitian government is completely inept and has no sort of um, means of exerting its influence across the country. And these powerful drug trafficking cartels and gangs have essentially engaged in a power struggle, a very open power struggle, to control parts of Haiti. In this year alone, we've seen entire neighbourhoods in the capital, Port Our Prince. They control entire highways running across the country and they're, you know, demanding tolls from people that pass through. In a less than two-week period, in late April and early May, over 200 people were killed in open gang warfare. So, you know, the UN itself has said that gang violence has reached unimaginable and intolerable intolerable sorry levels. Um, missionaries have been kidnapped, there are no elections in sight, but the people are continuing to mobilize. are still massive protests from unions, from the unemployed, and from progressive left-wing parties. For example, there's a very, very inspiring party called Platform Petit Gessaline, which is literally like a little Gessaline platform, I guess, or party, Named after, of course, Dessaline, who was one of the Haitian revolutionary leaders. And the party claims that they were inspired by Dessaline and by Fidel Castro. Now, there was massive vote rigging against them in the last election, but they still managed to come in third um, out of the many, many different parties that uh, run in Haitian elections. So, And they are also in alliance with Aristide's party, Lavalas. It's a very, very dire situation at the moment. I'm not even going to try and... Predict what is going to happen in Haiti. As I said, there aren't elections in sight. There's spiralling violence. The elite is continuing to, to be an inept servant of the United States and the European powers. And the situation, you know, with COVID-19, uh, the situation with this increasing violence, the economic fallout from all of these crises has just made life totally unbearable for most Haitians. And, you know, I suppose the one silver sort of lining of that means that the Haitians are going to continue to fight in very large numbers. And, you know, that is something that the Haitians have excelled at throughout their history, and that is resisting and fighting for a better future for themselves.
0: Life, as you've pointed out, continues to be very difficult for the people of Haiti, but we can't underestimate the legacy of the people who refused to be be under the European sums those many, many years ago
4: exactly exactly right this is the point that even after after these over two centuries of revolution turbulence and then the u.s and european attempts to reimpose their domination over haiti it all comes down to that fundamental fact that the europeans and the americans they are scared they are scared of the example that haiti showed the world And to this day, they cannot forgive them and they cannot let them succeed. That is what this shows, that they are so insecure about, not not only about their their past and their sordid history, you know, of colonisation and genocide, but that is still the fundamental basis of their rule today, of the US and European unipolar world today. And Haiti continues to be a symbol. And the people of Haiti continues to be a symbol. And that's really, really powerful that, You know, even today, the US and the Europeans have to repress Haiti and subjugate Haiti because of the fact that it was a beacon. And I am certain that one day, I do not know how long it will take, it will once again be a beacon of, you know, of of what people in the global South can do when they achieve true freedom and true sovereignty.
0: You've been listening to part two of an interview with PhD candidate and journalist, Sasha Gilles-Lakakis on the Republic of Haiti. If you missed part one last week, you can always book for the podcast. Go to 3cr.org.au slash podcasts.
2: Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown.
1: When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street.
2: Tune in to Homeless in Hotels.
1: A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels.
2: And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19.
1: Premiering on Thursday, July
5: 28th, 12pm to 1pm,
2: on 3CR, 855am. Homeless in in Hotels, a a 3CR 3CR supporter. supporter.
0: With the turmoil and utter despair continuing in Sri Lanka, playing mainly on the long reign of the extended Rajapaksa family, On the program today, we'll turn to the impact of that family on the Tamil community in the island country, and to do that, I'm joined by Renaga in Pakamur. You'd agree that the discrimination against the northern Tamils was institutionalised and carried out since Sri Lankan independence in 1948?
3: Those Tamils were continuously oppressed from 1948, so the individuals who were in the South, they were able to, you know, gain money easily while the Tamils had to work harder. That's seen with legislations that were passed to discriminate Tamils uh, continuously. And if you look at the politicians that are in power, they have become wealthy because they've been part of the game to oppress Tamils. So, you know, there's constant payment to oppress Elam Tamils. So... That's paying the military. you know, So you see one soldier for every six Elam Tamils, even today. And the economic crisis started because of the game to oppress Elam Tamils. So if you look um, at those who voted for Gautabai Rajpaksa, it was actually 6.9 million people. So it's only when those in the south felt an ounce of oppression, they had realized that those in power were able to gain that money by oppressing all, not just elan Tamils, but all.
0: When we talk about Elan Tamils, you're talking about Tamils in the north and the northeast, I assume. What about the Tamils in the south? How have they fared?
3: Well, I think the Tamils in the south, they're also oppressed. It doesn't matter where you are, but if you do look at the constant discrimination it is in the north and east because that is where land is being taken away and that is where what occurred in 2009 so there's deep pain in the north and east those in the south they're able to work past that but they are still being oppressed because at the end of the day um, it doesn't matter where you are in the island of Sri Lanka if you are Tamil you are constantly being oppressed through various means.
0: Were the Tamils in the south used when they set up the free trade zones with women working in the factories and machines? Were they Tamils or were they Sri Lankans? I can't
3: answer that question um, with the best of my knowledge, but I think they were Tamils.
0: When did the Rajapaksa family move into politics? So if you look,
3: um, Mahendra Rajapaksa, he came into power by being the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka in 2004. And Bay Rajapaksa also held power, and he was actually Lieutenant Colonel in 2009. So they held very prominent positions in years where it was very crucial for Tamils. So um, Mahendra Rajapaksa, sorry, was in power during the peace process. So this is a very crucial time when the LTTE, the Sri Lankan states, and the international community were trying to resolve ceasefire. And Gautapai Rajpaksa was a lieutenant colonel in 2009, so he also allowed deliberate killings to occur in Tamil Eelam. Gautapai Rajpaksa and Mahinda Rajpaksa are one of many who were the architects of 2009.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the peace process? We don't hear much about that. So the peace
3: process between the LTTE and the international states and the Sri Lankan state was to have various conferences to ensure that there was a ceasefire. So there was no acts of killing that were occurring in Tamalilam. And so during these peace processes, it became um, adamant that the international states and the Sri Lankan states were willing to work together. And the LTTE was pushing forward that there means for having their act of freedom fighters was to ensure that we had self-determination of Tamil Eelam. So the peace process was to make sure that there was no deliberate killings and to continue the conversation that Tamil Eelam be its own nation. Sadly, the peace process did not follow through as there was still deliberate acts of killing and yet the international states not recognise Tamil Eelam to be its own
0: state. What year or years was this? This was
3: during the years of 2002 to 2008.
0: Okay, well, bringing up to 2006 to 2009, that was what people call the last stage of the civil war. What was the role of the Rajapaksas in those years? I think
3: it should be first recognised that um, it was never a civil war, but it was a planned systemic genocide that is still occurring to this date this occurred from 1948 with the independence of Sri Lanka, but we as Tamils call it the beginning of the oppression of Tamils. 2009 was a year where, you know, the Sri Lankan state had called these areas the no-fire zones to be a zone where there would no be, there, were, there wouldn't be, um, killings. So actually the Elam Tamils, I, um, we all say that they were kind of herded like cattle to these zones. And those in power knew where these zones were, and it was planned systemic bombings, planned systemic executions, um, rape. It all occurred in these no-fire zones. So you would see hospitals being bombed 45 minutes apart. So they would bomb at once, and the Sri Lankan state would wait for 45 minutes, knowing that Tumas would try and go and rescue those who were still alive and then they would bomb it again just to make sure that those in that area were killed. And also in the no-fire zones, there was constant acts of rape that were occurring, and it was um, a scene where it was just blood, smoke, um, and fire when you talk to witnesses. That's how they describe it. It was where you would just see their land being stripped away um, and it was a very, very terrible time and a very painful time for Elam Tomloss. And
0: how many members of the Rajapaksa family were involved in this slaughter?
3: All of them, you could say, because all of them, it doesn't matter if they were not in power, all of them were still complicit to what was occurring in 2009. And Gozapaya Rajapaksa worked with individuals such as Chavendra Silva, so he is an accused war criminal as well, and he's actually barred from entry to the United States because of his role in executing Tamils. It doesn't matter if they did not he- held positions in power. It was the complicity that was occurring in 2009. And it's not just the Rajapaksas. It was also the international states that aided the Sri Lankan government, and that's, you know, the Australian government, the United States, London it's a whole range of individuals that were involved in what occurred in 2009
0: and then after 2009 what was the story
3: now that the acts of you know bombing and um massacring people is no longer seen you can see that there are acts of still um genocide occurring no one has been been held accountable for the actions that occurred in 2009 there is um acts of Tamil Elam land being stripped away. There has been the lies of archaeology placed to take down churches, take down temples and take down land to build Buddhist shrines and implement chauvinistic Buddhist ideology throughout the island. Um, You even see now the military going into the north and east and teaching kids. So this is a way of trying to Eliminate what occurred in 2009 and try to pretend that what had happened in 2009 is a past and shouldn't be talked about. And even now, President Ronald is now, you know, president and he also held, he had positions that during the years where he also oppressed tunnels. And so he, you know, is working very closely with Kamal Gunaratna, who was also the defense secretary and was former army commander. So, 2009, it was a massacre, and whilst there's no massacres occurring, there's little actions being taken to still oppress Elam Tamils and quieten them. You know, you see it with the North and East with mothers who have been protesting for five and a half years straight because they have lost their um, loved ones, um, disappeared, and there's no explanation of where they are. It's just Elam Tamils being oppressed in all ways um and it's to quieten them down. That is the issue that is occurring right now. And the military is in control? Definitely. The military is in control. So like I said, there's one soldier for every six individuals in the north and east. There is army camp bases throughout the north and east. There is army checkpoints. It's very heavily militarised. And even when we commemorate what occurred in 2009, You know, militaries try to stop individuals from lighting a lamp, which is extremely, you know, discriminatory. So military is there to enforce the Buddhist and chauvinistic ideology.
0: Well, in a situation like this, how do the people, the Tamil people, survive on a day-to-day basis with food, shelter, work, children able to go to school or not?
3: all the tamals in the north and east what they're doing is they're actually going back to the ways of what they did in 2009 this is nothing different to them this is exactly how it was in 2009 where they didn't receive any help so you know they're going back to just lighting a fire for food teaching kids under you know fire as well for light. it's just going back to the old ways and i think what What's helping them survive is the same willpower that they had in 2009. They know that they've done it before, they can do it again. And they still have that fight for having self-determination. And they're ensuring that the freedom fighters and the innocent civilians do not die in vain. So they're just continuing to go with what they've done in 2009 and teach the younger generation that they need to be strong and to be able to stand up against those in power who've continuously oppressed them.
0: Are there any ways that groups such as yours or other Tamils in other countries can get aid and support through to the people in the north and the northeast? Um, There are various organizations helping
3: the north and east. We send money we send resources. It's just that, you know, we've been doing it for years. And I think what, I think the diaspora and everyone realizes is that while we're helping them, we're remembering what occurred in 2009 and how we tried to help them and the Sri Lankan state wouldn't allow, you know, us to send money. But I think what continues us to help them is the um, like I said, the willpower and the determination to continue this long and hard fight.
0: Well, we're now in middle of 2022 and it looks as though the Rajapaksas have finally missed some sort of fate. But they've taken virtually all the, the money or on one of them is just that there's nothing left in the kitty, is there? They've, they've got the lot. They've taken it with them.
3: I would say they have taken it with them, but it's also, the money hasn't gone just to the Rajapaks, it's gone to the military. And even now, the money is still going to the military to continue oppressing those in the north and east, as well as right now, as you can see with the protesters um, attacking them as well. The money is there, but it has been spent on military purposes. It's just, we would have to wait and see if, what President Ronald does, but he has had past of oppressing Tamil. So we already know how this is going to go. He's just going to continue oppressing to ensure that he stays in leadership.
0: Are you aware of Tamils being involved in the protests over the last couple of months? I would know that there, um, Tamils in the south are involved and they're actually trying to draw awareness
3: to what occurred in 2009 and the executions that occurred. In 2009, those in the North and East have pointed out that this is not their fight. Their fight is very different because if you look at the protests, their ideology is not there. There's no ideology. The ideology that started was go home, go south. It wasn't very clear. While the North and East have been protesting for justice of the genocide that occurred in 2009, justice for the disappeared and justice to have their own land. So the North and East stated that this is a different fight and it's only when there is proper acknowledgement of Tamil genocide will this country be able to move forward.
0: But when you've got so many countries you say were complicit in ignoring what was happening, what hopes have you got that this will be addressed in the near future? I know that
3: being a part of the younger generation... Whilst this seems to the outside world quite difficult because international aids were complicit, I know that you know we were actually able to achieve Tamil Elam one day and we will still be able to do that. It is going to be a long and hard fight, but if we all work together to acknowledge the Tamil genocide and continue to draw awareness to the ongoing genocide, we'll be able to
0: hold those responsible and take them to the Hague court. And, of course, there are Tamils in many countries of the world now who have been there, some for many, many years, who are determined, as you say, to keep up this fight for the proper recognition of the Tamils. Yes, that is correct. In every country, there are Tamils continuously
3: protesting and continuously wanting to, you know, create change. And I, myself, when I visited the United Nations when I was in year 12, I was able to stand with Elam Tamils in Switzerland and that was very moving to know that it's not just in Tamil Elam, it's all over the world. But what I would say is in Tamil Elam, watching the mothers protest every single day, that is
0: a driving force for all diaspora to continue their fight. And the Tamils who are trying to escape this persecution at the moment, our government is turning them back. Yes, that is correct. That is nothing
3: new with um, the Labour Party as they've done this in the past. You know, when Julia Gillard was in power, she sent back 650 Tamors and some of them we do not know what is occurring um, and what has happened to them. With the Liberal Party, it's also the same. Um, We need to draw extreme awareness to the Labour Party being accountable for the genocide as well as they were in power in 2009. And even now, Claire O'Neill visiting. So she was the Home Affairs Minister. She visited Sri Lanka recently. She met with the war criminals. So that just says enough that the Labour Party is willing to meet with the Sri Lankan state, but is not willing to meet with those in the north and east and hear what had happened in 2009. And whilst they have released, you know, the Naretha Lincoln family to Billow, they still have provided them with bridging visas, which is not good. It's um, extremely... Terrible, as they will be living life in limbo, not knowing whether they'll be provided with permanent protection, especially for their two kids. Labor Party can say that they support, you know, Tumuls when they need to it for the vote, but really their actions don't show that.
0: What would you ask listeners or people on the street here in Australia to do to assist you in your work?
3: I would say definitely follow Tumul Refugee Council's Facebook page as we release media articles and we release what is actually occurring in the north and east and also what is occurring in Australia with refugees. Recently we've had two Tamils who have died the past, this past month because of the refugee laws and the added stress that they've gone through. Um, we also hold protests so, and rallies and also one thing that listeners should do is definitely watch No Fire Zone to understand what occurred in 2009 and to see video evidence the executions, the murders that occur, to really understand why Elam Tamils, like myself, are dealing with, you know,
0: ongoing generational trauma. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I've been speaking with Runaga from the Tamil Refugee Council. Do have a look at their Facebook page.
2: Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice
3: for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians Go to kafias.org.au That's k-u-f-i-y-a-s.org.au. A 3CR supporter
0: Speaking now with Professor Emeritus from Sydney University Stuart Rees. Stuart, this is a topic that I've spoken about or had on the program a number of times, but it needs telling over and over again the difference between what is happening in countries like Yemen and Palestine and what is happening in Ukraine. Well, it all depends on the stereotypes that get passed on by the media, by politicians, by
5: other people of influence. And the stereotypes are... A, that the Ukrainians are enormously worthy of attention every hour of the day. And with regard to the the Palestinians and the people of Yemen, well, they're not really worth our attention very much. So you've got the utter contrast that the the war in Yemen has been going on for over six years, probably one of the most inhuman events that's occurred since the Second World War. And the war in Ukraine needs attention, but it's been going on for less than six months. and gets ten times more attention than Yemen. Similarly, the treatment of the Palestinians, I mean, they've been suffering the most brutal occupation ever since the Second World War, and occasionally we get attention, and, and it's usually been on behalf of the aggressors, the Israelis, as though they are the victims. So there's a completely skewed, unfair, socially, politically unjust picture.
0: And when you think of one or two homemade rockets compared to fighters from the Israeli armed forces bombing the enclave of Gaza?
5: The Israelis have a license for cruelty, and the Western media is not allowed to Ever say it, the Western media behaves as though you've got two balanced forces, two equal forces fighting one another. It's the biggest lie imaginable. I mean, for example, the several invasions of Gaza being referred to as wars, they were never wars, they were just organized slaughters of an innocent people. Tens of thousands of women and children and other civilians massacred, their homes bombed, their hospitals flattened, and they we're supposed to say nothing, or very little.
0: And it's the inhumane treatment of the people of Gaza when they're blockaded and there's not enough food for the people, there's not enough water, the sewerage doesn't work, the malnutrition of children, they're going to grow up stunted, they already are stunted. How the world powers can allow something like that to happen? Because they
5: <laughs> stick with the stereotype. I mean, I'm inclined to say people are not just, they're not being entirely racist, although the American lobbies are, the American lobbies on behalf of of Israel are, but it's partly due to a certain laziness. People don't, don't inquire, don't read, don't seem to know. In a country like Australia, they get, their, they get too many messages from the front page of the Daily Telegraph, and even politicians, too many of them don't seem to read very much, don't seem to have the ability to inquire, be curious, raise questions, and in particular to find sufficient courage to go against the conventional narrative that, the, that Israel is a democratic, besieged country, <laughs> that should be supported. And,
0: and we have President Biden going off to meet with the, the rulers in Saudi Arabia. Do you think there's, there's one person who resides over human rights abuses talking to another that resides over human rights abuses?
5: Uh, yeah, so I mean, that picture of um, Biden bumping fists with the Saudi Arabian thug That was embarrassing beyond belief. It just shows that trade and money and arms trump human rights every time. And frankly, the survival of planet Earth and everything, every living thing on it, it depends on a complete reversal of the sort of behavior that we saw in Saudi Arabia this week.
0: Well, I'd like you to talk about two Australian personalities, and I'm sure that they might be good friends of yours, or maybe we could do well without them. <laughs> and, and one is George Henry Brandis, and the other is Scott John Morrison. Which one would you like to have a go at first? Well,
5: well you, know, you seem to be inviting me to join the Pentecostal Church. Both of them uh, show the same deplorable characteristics. We'll start with Morrison. I mean, the guy is completely fake. He now says that um, nobody should listen to government. He he obtains cheap laughs about the United Nations. He scorns the United Nations. And yet for three years, and he was the Prime Minister of Australia, and for several years before that was a a Cabinet Minister. Uh, The guy stands for nothing except attempting to have the last word, except to, to be deferential to um, uh, shock jock radio and the worst organs of um, Murdoch Media. After all, Murdoch Media made every effort possible to ensure Scott Morrison's re-election. And as the editor of the Guardian Australia wrote, in some ways it was a miracle that that, uh, Albanese and Labor won the election. So this is huge. Right-wing, quasi-religious lobby with a lot of money, a lot of media influence, or have, they have that media influence, who supported the the lying and the preposterous, absurd behaviour of Scott Morrison.
0: And of course, the place that he he chose to make this 50-minute speech—it wasn't—he might have called it a sermon, but it was a speech is the Victory Life Centre in Western Australia. Tell us a bit about that.
5: It's this crazy, crazy right wing evangelical form of Christianity which seems to believe there's going to be a second coming, um, seems to believe that the only that every cue about life should be taken from different parts of the Bible but seems to believe, too, in as much financial investment from government and other powerful donors. So we need to believe that that, that uh, erection in Western Australia, the, the, the several stories high tower, which is that Pentecostal church, was funded pretty generously by government at a time when church and state are supposed to be set separate. In fact, most of our civility we owe to the fact that church and state have been separated people like scott morrison and that church seem to think that they represent government they more or less told us so that we don't need government we only need this phenomenon called god it's nonsensical in some ways it's it's funny if it wasn't so dangerous
0: do you think he's happy about being connected with um trump and johnson and You know, they're sort of linking the three of them together now. I reckon he'd be pretty proud of that, wouldn't he?
5: Oh, yes, because the sort of bombast fake news, the, the confident assumption that they are always right, when intellect requires a touch of humility that says at least on occasions I might be wrong. And I don't think that, um, that unholy trinity... I think, although I think he'd like to believe it's a holy trinity of himself and Johnson and Trump don't like to believe they're wrong. But let's get to the, the Reverend George Brandeis.
0: When did he get that title from?
5: <laughs> I've got my tongue in my cheek. I think there's a danger in pomposity and arrogance. When I wrote this, the article appeared today, that meant that, ben, that Brandeis was actually a menace, it was a threat. And what I meant by that is not only the behavior of that individual, but the social class that he thinks he represents, that he does represent. Groups of people who are superior, or think they're superior, superior in their their money, their influence, their status. So you had him appearing without any touch of compassion or understanding, in in being very, very judgmental about Julian Assange. And and then the danger or the threat from the the pomposity of of a former uh, attorney general, a former high commissioner, is that he's the judge of everything, and nobody should should question his wisdom. That's what's threatening, that's what's dangerous about it, but... um, even though, with a bit of luck these days, no one should take any notice of him.
0: You're referring to a a recent Q&A session. What sort of questions was he asked?
5: Q&A of a week ago, and I I was only focusing on one issue, which was about the, the treatment of Julian Assange. As Australia's representative at the Court of St. James, He had a great deal of responsibility to intervene on behalf of an Australian citizen kept unjustly and cruelly in a top security British prison. So he was asked about that and he he seemed to boast that when he was Australian High Commissioner, he had instructed his office to at least write once a month remember that, once a month to Julian Assange to ask if there was anything he needed. And the audience laughed at Brandeis over this, but of course it didn't dent his confidence at all. The second issue arose concerning his judgment about the consequences of long-term imprisonment, which he seemed to say didn't really have much effect on Assange. In response to that, the academic Dr. Kylie Moore Gilbert, who had spent 804 days in an Iranian jail, was also on the program. He came eloquently to Julian Assange's defense and said that she knew what the physical and mental consequences of long-term imprisonment were. Brandeis wouldn't have a bar of that. He kept on interrupting her. It was like it was a typical piece of bullying patriarchy. It was a, it was a very revealing performance. It was a performance of, of the old man up himself, patriarchy at its worst, of which Brandeis seemed to re- represent that Strain of society. That was what it was about. I mean, there were other issues on the on that Q and A program, but that was the one that I focused on, which showed Brandeis at his worst, for two reasons. I wouldn't dismiss him. One, Julian Assange's life is at stake. One of the most cruel, unjust treatments of of a significant citizen that I can think of. And the second thing is that Brandeis represents a brand, a powerful group of people on both sides of the Atlantic and down here in Australia, who think they're superior, who think they know best, who think they know what the law is, who think they know how so-called deviants should be treated. They're actually a menace. They've always been a a huge obstacle to a sense of justice.
0: How do you compare that to the, the current government in Australia, the members of that?
5: They started off giving us a little bit of encouragement. I mean, we sent the uh, Dreyfus, and, or Chalmers, sent the Mouragappan um, family back to Bilalaya. They stopped the the prosecution of Kaleri and I'm waiting to see if uh, Albanese has really intervened on behalf of Assange. And I suppose the, the big rally outside Parliament House, on behalf of Julian Assange, will... Uh, reveal whether we're going to get any courageous reaction from Albanese and go, or whether they're so intimidated by Washington and London that um, they won't make a squeak. I've, I have my fingers crossed on that one.
0: What in- influence do you believe an Australian politician or a Australian Prime Minister would have on those two governments, the US and the UK, concerning Julian?
5: Well, I I think they could have enormous, it's not just the influence on those governments, but the influence on the the Australian people. I mean, if the Australian people were to rise up as the people of Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka have against their uh, 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 corrupt, inhuman politicians, the Rajapaksa family, we might have had a different result for Julia. But too many proportions of the um, Australian public, including journalists, have been frightened and silent for years over Julian Assange. I mean, some disgraceful journalists spent time trying to argue that he wasn't like one of them, he wasn't really a journalist. I mean, it was the most cowardly, cowardly destructive behavior from, again, from privileged people, in this this case, a couple of journalists. I mean, even George Brandeis said he, he didn't wish any ill towards... Assange, that's not the point uh, you should have been intervening courageously and bravely against convention there's too many people genuflecting towards convention desperately trying to be respectable desperately trying to get brownie marks with what I would call the establishment
0: You mentioned a moment ago the people's revolt in, or the non-violent revolt in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. You worked there for a while. When was that? Correct. When was that? No, and... I was there. No, I was there during the
5: at the beginning of the Civil War, and I, it was as far ago as uh, 1984. I think it was 1984,
0: 1985. Even then, a, a very unequal country?
5: Yes, because the minority people, the Tamils, were heavily discriminated against, and then the Civil War was fought. Ostensibly between the, the, the Sinhalese dominated government and the Tamil Tigers. Remember, at the end of that war, about 40,000 people at least were slaughtered uh, or they disappeared, possibly as many as 100,000. And the Rajapaksas, the uh, family, were the, respectively the president and the defense minister at that time. So these are men who were guilty of war crimes, even though. There has been, so far, no official investigation. So the whole business of basing a country around an awful prejudice, in a way, a leftover from British colonialism, was really what the protest of the people in the streets w- was partly about. It was, I mean, ostensibly, it was about um, poverty and the whole economy collapsing. But beneath that is the, the lasting energy put towards discriminating against the Tamils.
0: And how many former colonies of the British, and I dare say other colonial powers, could you compare with what's been happening in Sri Lanka?
5: All over the place. You could. You might even have a, we might even do some pretty careful historical head-scratching about discrimination towards um, the indigenous people of Australia, let alone the native peoples of North America or the indigenous people of different uh, South American countries. They're all the consequences of colonization, and you'd have to say the same about what used to be part of the British Empire, uh, namely um, the Indian subcontinent. And, and uh, I'm not quite sure why I've missed out the most pertinent example, which was the um, the Balfour Declaration and the claim that... Um, that the home for Jewish people would never be made at the expense of the indigenous people. So the consequences of colonization come home to roost with terrible consequences for centuries. Okay, well, next time,
0: uh, an optimistic topic, perhaps. Well, we're going to talk about the People's Forum, is that right? No, that would be wonderful. You know, between
5: 400 and 500 people have registered for this on Sunday evening. Now, that's one of the biggest responses, which shows how desperate people are to talk about peace and not war.
0: Righto. Well, next week we'll talk about what people had to say.
5: No, I look forward to that, Jan. Thank you so much.
0: And many thanks to Professor Emeritus Stuart Lees and next week, the People's Forum on the Ukraine War. What is Australia's role in giving peace a chance? to us the people we need a treaty in this country we need the end to the war in this country and the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty not the one you see in Victoria not the one you see in Queensland not the one you see in the Northern Territories Because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you.
6: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
0: Welcome back to Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign for an update on the campaign worldwide against the increasing push to mine the oceans. Nat, for those who aren't familiar with the issue of deep sea mining, could you briefly explain what is involved and what is at stake? Deep sea mining, and just to
6: clarify, there is currently no operating deep sea mine in the world but deep-sea mining is considered mining from 200 meters below of the sea floor and there's three types that deep-sea miners have been looking at. The first is around 1,500 meters to 2,000 meters and that's the hydrothermal vents um, and they're like the un- underwater volcanoes which has been a bit more research about them and you know they're full of life and they are called the ring of fire that runs through the oceans and the globe and One big area of Ring of Fire actually runs through the Bismarck and Solomon Seas of Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. The second type they're looking at is on seamounts, which basically from the Abyssal Plains up these sort of mountains range. And they're also full of, you know, corals and life and there's a lot of marine life that rely on the seamounts. And the final one is in the Abyssal Plains. They're in the deepest part of the ocean, you know, to 6,000 metres. And there's a particular area between Hawaii and the Baja coast of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean called the current Clifton Zone, which has been carved up with countries and also companies, you know, coming together, looking at mining what are called these polymetallic nodules. So they're like these sort of coal-sized, potato-sized rocks that take millions of years to form, but are full of minerals. And so that's the one that the industry's really going gung-ho to try and open up in the next year and a half. And the license is given in international waters is through a body called the International Seabed Authority. So that's a big focus for us at the moment in terms of calling for a moratorium and and even in the Pacific there's a very strong call for a complete ban on deep-sea mining.
0: Well, let's begin with the Pacific. There was a recent launch of the Pacific Parliamentarians Alliance that was held in Palau. Mm -hmm. What was the outcome of that meeting?
6: The Pacific Parliamentarians' Alliance on Deep Sea Mining are basically calling for a moratorium. And that's been led by the opposition leader of Vanuatu, um, Honourable Ralph Reganvanu. And there's something like, and it keeps growing, there could be up to about 15 parliamentarians across the Pacific now, including the Solomons, Papua New Guinea, Palau, like there's many. And they've been very strong and Interestingly, we've just recently had the United Nations Oceans Conference in Lisbon. So that happened in the last week of June. At that conference, pretty much on the first day, the President of Palau and Fiji basically launched a kind of country alliance to call for a moratorium on deep sea mining. So what's really great is that Parliamentarian Alliance has now pushed for countries themselves to call for that moratorium. So that was a really special way for that week to start for many of us who have been really fighting against deep-sea mining for the last decade. At that statement, also one of the ministers of Samoa stood up in the audience and said, we also join the call. And at the Pacific Forum, that happens. So following Palau's leadership, the Federated States of Micronesia have also joined the Alliance of Countries for a deep-sea mining moratorium um, and outside the Pacific, we now have Chile as well, who's also calling for a moratorium. So it's gradually growing, which has been really exciting, very much led by the Pacific.
0: With those Pacific countries, what are their main concerns? Is it their fishing? Is it their culture? Is it a bit of everything? Look, it's a bit of everything, and I'm not
6: a Pacific Islander, so I don't have that Pacific lens. But it is very cultural for them. You know, people go, oh, small island states in the Pacific, but really they're large ocean states. They have large economic exclusive zones, so oceans that is part of their country. They rely on the ocean for their lives, their livelihoods, for their cultural practices, for spiritual practices. So it is about the fishing and they're also, you know, these are the communities that are frontline to climate change, to rising sea levels. So for them, they just see another industry coming in, another experimental industry. Remember that the Pacifica was also experimenting on with nuclear testing. So they're just seeing this as another industry coming in that's going to further destroy their oceans. We do have these lines in the, in the ocean that carve out these economic exclusive zones in international waters. But for a lot of Pacific Islanders, they don't even see those. Boundaries or those lines because they see the oceans as interconnected. These are, the, these are the oldest navigators in the world and they have a lot of story and history that actually connect them across the waters. And so this is what they're very grounded in protecting, as well as their own economies, which of course is very much based around sort of fishing and, and, and the marine industries.
0: And of course, there's many countries who border the Pacific, particularly in the Americas, You talked about Chile, but what about all the other countries? Are they pushing for a ban, or are they
6: not? Baja coast of Mexico, there has been strong resistance by the local communities there, who are very much like fishing cooperatives, they're fisher folk. And there was a company there that was wanting to open up, and the government said no, and now there's actually a bit of a legal battle there. Um, between that company and the Mexican government. So for now, I guess the Mexican government sort of caught up in that so At the moment, you know, there's a sort of growing call for countries to join the moratorium. So there's been a lot of work being done and you know, I guess, you know, in this area We're really trying to put a lot of pressure on New Zealand and we're starting to put pressure on Australia particularly with the new change of government So it's a really international movement Yeah, you know, we've also got Africa too where they're looking at seabed mining, also possibly in the Indi- you know Indian Ocean, um, also the Atlantic Ocean. It isn't just the Pacific Ocean, although that's the really front line of where the industry is trying to advance. But we really need a ban completely. This industry should just not go ahead. And so really, in terms of the deep sea mining campaign that I work with, we support the moratorium towards a ban. We understand that a moratorium is the step towards a ban, like what happened up in the Northern Territory, where they initially had a moratorium on seabed mining, and then it became a ban.
0: Are the miners pushing for the warmer waters rather than up north, in the northern areas? I don't know if it's so much about the temperatures, although that probably does make a difference
6: with equipment. But really, the Clarin-Clipperton zone, which is that area I initially talked about between Hawaii and um, the coast of Mexico, the Baja coast of Mexico, and also Kiribati's EZZ really does come quite close to that area as well. That's really the area that the International Seabed Authority has opened up for exploration licenses. So at the moment, that area has exploration licenses probably close to the size of Europe. So if this was all to go ahead and all those operations were to start, we would have the largest mining operation on the planet, which would be close to the size of Europe. So that's to give a visual of how much destruction would be happening. And unlike land-based mining, which we can see the destruction, even in land-based mining, there's destruction we can't see. We can't always see what happens to underground waters and and the pollutions, the air pollution. But in the deep sea, 6,000 metres below, how are we ever going to really see or understand the destruction, particularly in an environment where we still don't have enough science. You know, this is very deep. It's it's one of the last areas we're really starting to explore. You know, some scientists say the moon the surface of the moon has been explored more than the surface of our deep seas. So that's the major concern. And of course we've got the concern of Pacific people and their connection to oceans we have the environmental concerns. And those concerns include the plumes, so the sediments, the deep sea isn't like a hard compacted kind of ground. It's sort of a soft surface and you're going to bring these machines that are going to go along, these big machines, some high. they're going to create these plumes, these, this pollution of heavy metals that are going to move throughout the different layers of the ocean. And we just recently launched a side event of the United Nations Oceans Conference, um, our video called Blue Peril, and we used existing scientific predictions from two reports that we published in 2019 and 2020. Users like the sort of ocean models as accurately as possible, highlighting how far reaching the impacts of these polluting plumes will be in the Pacific Ocean. And then only recently, so not only will this industry dredge up the seafloor or, or sort of strip mine the seafloor, it also create a lot of noise, and that poses a huge amount of problems for marine life. Um, and that's in a newly published paper in the Science Journal, and it's sort of quoted in one of the articles that within about six kilometres of a deep-sea mine, the noise could be the equivalent to or even louder than a rock concert. So we're already starting to see the science evidence come out that there are going to be a huge amount of impacts. And the deep sea, it moves slower, life takes longer to grow I mean, these these nodules take a million years millions of years to form so those impacts are going to have a really long long legacy into future generations and that's what our deep concern is and that's why we believe that this industry should never be opened up
0: as if the marine life needs any other things going on that humans have brought into their area to deal with they're dealing with everything at the moment and and the oceans are in trouble they're absolutely in trouble they're under huge pressure and at
6: great threat because of overfishing because of the acidification from climate change from other forms of pollution we don't really need another sort of industry which has a huge amount of unknowns really what those impacts would be to happen and I I would um, you know to anyone listening definitely go and look at our Blue Peril video Um, it really does give you it's only 15 minutes it gives you a bit of a specific lens of what it means to Pacific people. You know, we have spent three years on this video, so we've worked with oceanographers and other scientists to really kind of look at the modelling of what these pollution plumes and how far they would spread. And what we've shown is they could spread as far as Hawaii, to the coast of Hawaii. Uh, and the video can be seen at www.bluepearl.org.
0: And that's an issue too, isn't it? It's not only civil society and others campaigning against this mining, it's scientists as well putting their hands up. Absolutely. And that was
6: really even and again at the UN Oceans Conference. So I think there's something close to 600 scientists who have signed a letter calling for a moratorium. And more keep coming out. And there's some strong leadership. There's a Dr. Diva Ramon, who is a renowned deep-sea biologist, so she was very present at the UN Oceans Conference, along with Sylvia Earle, who one of our oldest advocates for oceans. She's in her eighties. So there were some really great voices, which are also for people probably more interested in popular culture, Jason Momoa, commonly known as Aquaman in the movies, he was also there and has stood up calling for this industry not to go ahead. And actually at the closing of the UN Oceans Conference, you know, they basically ring for who's going to hold it next time and it's actually going to be France. So the French president, President Macron, also called for a stop to deep sea mining. We we're very pleased to hear, although the next steps for him is to rescind the French deep sea mining contracts in that Clarence and Clipperton zone because they do have contracts there.
0: Talk about the ISA Whose side is it
6: on? Sure. So the International Seabed Authority, something like 160 countries represented. It has meetings out in Kingston, Jamaica. In our report, Why the Rush, we pretty much openly state that there is corporate capture. And there's definitely a form of corporate capture in that body that is making these decisions about regulations and also, you know, giving out these exploration licenses. Um, and one of the concerns we've had is around a particular aggressive deep sea miner called the Metals Company, formerly Deep Green, and the relationship it has with the International Seabed Authority. So there is a little thing called the two-year trigger rule, and the Metals Company, which has partnered with Nauru, basically triggered that two-year rule, which means that they could potentially open up in 2024 in that Carrington-Clipperton zone and in international waters. So actually the ISA are having their meetings in July and August and there's been some major concern from our partners, particularly the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition that are observers at the ISA, about the lack of transparency and access to these meetings. So there's been some real call-out about the fact that it looks like there's going to be a lot more closed doors at this meeting and that's a real, real concern for us around proper transparency and accountability with a body that's making these very like, you know, these decisions that could further threaten our oceans.
0: So who are they accountable to? They are sort of attached
6: to the UN but they're not really accountable to the UN. But they are really accountable under sort of international law because international waters is the common heritage of humankind. However, they sort of take a very economic growth approach to that, and their way of dealing, you know well they're like, well, these companies are partnering with these Pacific states, but it's still very driven by the deep sea miners, so the metals company are not formally like mining people they're really speculative miners, you know they're there, and they're going to make the money and run off that's that's kind of how we see it and and to be honest, the metals company's struggling because we've really formulated a strong campaign against them and we'll continue to because we don't want them to go ahead. The other companies involved include Stredging Companies um, and also Lockheed Martin, a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, which we all know is huge, you know, involved in military. So regardless of the metals company, we still have a big fight on our hands in terms of other other companies that are involved. It is about getting the Pacific in particular Really, to stand up and lead the way to make sure this industry doesn't go ahead.
0: Well, then, where is the expertise coming from to facilitate this industry if it does get the go-ahead? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I mean, they haven't really just even developed the
6: regulations. Kind of disgraceful, really, the approach. I mean, we we are pretty much we're calling for a moratorium on everything. So basically a complete moratorium, no development of regulations until the science can show us what the impacts are. Personally for us, we don't have a time on that moratorium, but Chile, for example, is called for a 15-year moratorium. And so there's sort of calls for 10 to 15 years. But we've spoken to scientists who've said that's too short, that's not long enough. And that's part of the reason that we actually really, in terms of the deep sea mining campaign, we stand with the Pacific Blue Line, which is an alliance of the Pacific Conference of Churches and other civil society groups across the Pacific who are actually calling for a ban. So that's where we kind of stand, but we also understand that it is important to support the moves for a moratorium, particularly at the country level, because if we can get moratoriums in, we have more time to really kind of argue for a ban.
0: Do these companies have scientists in their pockets to push their view on mining?
6: Unfortunately, a lot of the science coming out has been backed by the corporations because that's where the money is, which is why our video is is really important because it's completely independent. And it's one of the only pieces that have come out that's completely independent in terms of like modelling, although there's obviously some other research. There's some really good research that's been coming out by By scientists. So more and more there's a lot more papers coming out that are independent of industry. But the thing is scientists can't get down there. (laughs) You know, and that's a lot of money. So that is where some of the problems are. So some of the scientists that are able to do this research have to use the data that the companies have. So that's the complexity of science um, for a lot of scientists often which is why it's so important and so fantastic that you know 600 scientists have come out calling for a moratorium. So we need a lot more independent science outside the sort of corporate capture to be able to tell the real story of what the impacts are going to be.
0: How important are banks in bankrolling these ventures?
6: Well of course the finance aspect is very important and that's a key part of our campaign is the finance advocacy, and um, my colleague Andrew Whitmore leads on that work. He's based in London, and we have been getting banks to shift policy, basically saying that they wouldn't invest in deep-sea mining, and that's some ongoing work. Also, there's a very strong campaign around getting companies to also stand for the moratorium, and we've there's quite a few companies now. There's BMW, there's Google, there's Samsung, there's, there's quite a few companies that are out there. You can go to defendthedeep.org and you can see the list of companies that are joining that call. So we are really looking at a whole range of stakeholders here or people or companies that we're really trying to get on board. Very much this campaign, broader campaign, has been, has really been led by Pacific communities, particularly those at the front line. And it's really great now to see parliamentarians, companies, banks, investors and countries starting to catch up and understand that this industry should not go ahead.
0: And also important that all forms of media are there to inform the civil society to what actually is happening.
6: There is a lot more like when we started out in 2011 we were pretty much the go-to for media. <laughs> no one was really working on this issue. Now every day I am seeing articles on this issue, you know some are oh this could be the answer to climate change but more and more we're seeing the questions around is this an industry we want. Particularly as you see the science papers come out like this recent one that's looking at the noise pollution there was a lot of media that came out of the United Nations Oceans Conference that deep sea mining was quite a prominent issue. I dare say that in the, the, the main inside forum, there was still like needs to be a lot more voices in there, but there was a lot happening in the side events and outside. There was also a peaceful protest. that was very much led with the, the sort of stop deep sea mining. It was led by my colleague Tita from Tonga, the co-leader of the Māori Party, Deba Naui also an, an Indigenous First Nations person from Australia, Teresa um, Aldred. So it was really great to sort of see this Indigenous woman leading that peaceful protest and that a call for no deep sea mining was very much one of the key calls.
0: Well, finally, Nat, in the future, not so many years hence, could deep sea mining be not really needed, that there'll be an alternative to digging up the ocean floor? That's the big thing. We need to move beyond this sort of extractive
6: concept and logic that we are in. Part of the PR of the deep sea mining industry, the the sort of deep sea miners, this sort of PR spin that we need to mine our deep seas for the green transition and green and quotation there. And we're saying absolutely not. Like we need to rethink our economies, our societies. And, and this includes land-based mining because this green extractivism that is growing exponentially is happening on land as well. And we're seeing um, a whole new area's been opened up on land and obviously the deep sea is another sort of sacrificial zone um, that they're wanting to open up. So while we want to decarbonize and we want to, inf- you know, the fossil fuel industry, absolutely, we don't want to replace it with something that's going to create a whole other set of problems and pollution issues for us. We need to really rethink what are what are some alternatives to the developed modern models that we're in. We need to think, rethink our consumption, our energy consumption levels. Like these are really real issues that we need to start thinking about now. Having a billion uh, electric vehicles on the road is not the answer, and that's a very global North privilege space to be to think about that. The interesting thing with this sort of green extractivism is that it's not just opening up new spaces in the global south, it's also opening up new spaces in the global north. And we've seen that in Portugal, in Spain and Serbia with mass protests there. Even here in Australia, we we are going to have, we already are a massive mining state, as we all know. But the footprint of opening up to these critical minerals that they're calling for the green transition, like lithium, nickel, copper, rare earth, cobalt, that is going to be massive, particularly in places like Western Australia. Regardless of, you know, deep sea mining as part of this, we really, really need to rethink the way we live on this planet and our our economies and our societies. You know, there already are traditional practices that um, are based in sustainability and Indigenous people have these knowledges for a very long time. And in our kind of more Western context, there are other avenues we can look at from urban mining to reducing consumption of ways of living and working. So these are the sort of things, and this is a very, very brief overview because it's like another conversation, but these are the sort of ways we need to look forward. And these alternatives, or these not alternatives in some cases because they've been around for thousands of years, they already exist. It's not new. And if we're going to spend billions of dollars on all this EVs and things, we can spend that, on actually creating new ways forward. Be sustainable and they're going to be for people and for planet.
0: And not just leave it to the activists, that we all need to play a part.
6: Also not just to bring it on us as individuals which I think has been quite problematic that you know we need to recycle and we need to do, we all need to do our part but actually we need to hold governments and industry accountable and they have to change their practices. And that means it can't be just always profit-driven, and it can't be just about, you know, this constant growth narrative. We need to consume less, produce less. That is a movement towards degrowth. And that's not like I think people get scared of that term because they think, oh, we're going to go back to the caves. That's not what it's about at all. It's about being a lot more mindful about what we're producing and consuming and actually shifting our societies that are not based on just putting competition, but they're cooperative and their cultures of care, not just with each other, but also with all life on planet.
0: Thanks once again, Ned. No worries. It's really great to talk to you. Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And do have a look at their excellent webpage. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.